find something of value. The higher education community in South Africa is really unintellectualized. How central this humanity is. Welcome to The Academic Citizen. I'm your host, Mahita Ikani. Well, here we are. As a podcast team, we have traveled a journey in this year of 2022. We started with our comeback earlier in the year, and here we are at our eighth episode, which will be our last one for this season. We've learned so much, and it feels like we've come a long way. In the last episode, Dr. Nosipum Gomezulu as our guide, we explored the possibilities of failure as a constructive force in academic life and even in our research processes. In this episode, in the spirit of origins, roots and destinations as we close off our season, we think about journeys. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the entire world effectively went into lockdown and we were all told to stay at home. Some of us did, some of us didn't, most of us tried. We all still have a lot of processing to do about the emotional fallout of feeling stuck and being locked in and locked down. It was really something, wasn't it, that we all just stopped moving around our cities, countries, the whole world for several months. Of course, we all got cabin fever, relegated as we were to our homes and apartments, no matter how grand or humble our spaces. We all wanted to get out and get moving again, to go places. Perhaps movement, the going, the coming, the coming, the going, is inherent to our very humanness. There's something about traveling that makes time at home all the sweeter, and of course something about being stuck at home that makes a person really want to wander. Like all living creatures, we locomote, we walk, we run, we ride, we move. For all creatures, moving is vital to life, and I think this is certainly true to a significant degree for us humans too, although we are perhaps more sedentary than ever in terms of our everyday lives. We've invented ever more sophisticated and fast ways to get from one part of the world to another. When I think of journeys, I think of all those places that I've been privileged enough to visit, the short holidays I've managed to tack on to conference trips, the places that I've loved so much as to go to great lengths to figure out how to go back again the long drives with my partner and our dog, listening to podcasts and music. Those kinds of travel are exciting or thrilling, but sometimes travel can also be stressful and tiring. The red-eye flights, the early mornings to get to work commitments, the late-night taxi rides home, wondering whether that meeting could have been an email or a Zoom call. Did I have to fly there or drive here? burning fossil fuels just to shake someone's hand? I've had to travel a lot this year for both personal and work reasons. And I'm actually really ashamed of my carbon footprint, this year especially. I know that I need to face a big decision soon about whether to stop flying, or at the very least to fly less as one small contribution to solving the climate crisis. I'm not sure if I can do it. I'm not sure if I can not fly at all. But we'd certainly need to be having conversations about that as academics. And luckily, our second guest today thinks with me on this problem that I'm sure many other academics are also facing. Alongside this, knowing that I have to do something, no matter how small, to work with others to lower our carbon emissions, I still have a list of places I want to go, all of which require flying. It's a list of hope. 
There's one specific journey that I'm yearning to make and that I can't, but it's a little too painful to speak about at this moment in my life. I hope that before I die, I'll get the opportunity to be in that place, to smell its air and hear its sounds and practice my childish grasp of its language, taste its food and be embraced by the culture that runs in my DNA. But I can't. The journey is impossible. And there's a pain embedded into the impossibility of that journey. But here I am anyway, making that wish, dreaming of flying, hoping to go, even though I'm aware that the climate crisis might mean that we can't fly as much as we used to, or at all in the future. As well as journeys of hope and pleasure, there are tragically too many forced journeys that people have to take out of necessity and fear. There are too many people in the world who do not need to imagine what it must be like to flee from terror, war, persecution, to have to run away on foot with only what they can carry, to travel on crowded boats across dangerous waters or to swim across crocodile-infested rivers in search of safety. Here in South Africa, we do not welcome our neighbours who need us, even though they welcomed so many exiles during the struggle. We demand papers and documents. We deny health care. We label people as illegal. There is so much pain as well as pleasure in the journeys that we human beings take. But there's also knowledge. There's knowledge in journeys, of journeys, about journeys. There is that cliche about life being a journey rather than a destination. But what is a journey without a destination? Is it just movement? Do we need to know where we are going and why to call it a journey? Or do we simply need to know where we're coming from? What forms of knowledge can we create through journeying? Come with me as I speak to three researchers about three ways of knowing with and through movement, three perspectives on exploring origins and destinations, and three perspectives on the politics of coming and going. First, we hear from a social historian on the political power of walking and walking as a methodology for ground theory. Second, we listen to a climate scholar about the politics of flying, especially for academics and activists. And finally, we enter the realm of a special breed of wild cat that is increasingly moving into and out of urban peripheral space. So hello, my name is Harmony Siganporia, and I'm an associate professor of culture and communication at a tiny little postgrad campus in Gujarat called Maika. I'm also a musician, and I'm someone who's thought about and fought with, but really mostly thought about the imp we call Gandhi for well over a decade now. He refuses to leave me be. It's lovely to have you on our show, and we're excited Thank to talk you. to you. So you have very recently released a wonderful looking book called Walking from Dandy. The frame of this, of course, is, as you know, the Dandy March. And this was one of the apogees of Gandhi's political career. It's a long three and a half week journey on foot and by road when he walks from Ahmedabad to Dandy. I mean, it's wonderful as a South African sitting in South Africa to be talking to an Indian colleague sitting in India, because we do actually share a history a little bit with this very famous figure 
of Mahatma mm-hmm. Gandhi. Let's start there. So not everyone will necessarily, even though you tell us that this march was one of the apogees of Gandhi's political career, can you fill us in for those who are not as clued up? What was the Dandi March? And Gladly. what drew you to it as a kind of object of study as a social historian? That's a wonderful place to start, really. But I have to say that there is a South African connection even to Dandi. You know, of course, walking as political communication or walking as method within the Gandhian schema really comes into the shape that he's going to hone it for the rest of his life while he's in South Africa. What we today call the Great March, one of the last mass movements that he led in South Africa before he came back to India, was actually the mobilization of over 2,200 people who quite simply walked. The Great March lasted barely a week, under a week, but it was through that kind of mobilization and what it sought to achieve that it became clear to him that the method had a lot of power and it could then be refined to become what it did in the Indian context, which is, I think, lessons learned from South Africa taught Gandhi that for a march of this scale to attract and keep attention, it would have to be longer than the Great March, which lasted all of five days and was intended to fill up your jails, let's be clear. But on the other hand, you know, by the time we get to India, by the time we get to the Dandi March, suddenly what you have is a three and a half week beast, which is time enough for the press to pick it up, to start thinking about what's going on here. And not so long that it's going to disappear from the front pages and find itself, you know, on page seven with a three line write up talking about where the massive phalanx is on a given day. A lot goes back to South Africa, good, bad and ugly. I remember that I was incredibly tortured the first time that I came and saw what's left of Phoenix, the settlement in South Africa. The first time I was there, I'm used to seeing a Gandhi figure uh, rot in light. And what the sense that I got of him in South Africa was that this was very much a work in progress, which he remained for the rest of his life. But it is definitely the source domain, if you like, for a lot of the ideas that are going to achieve fruition over the course of the rest of his life. So very quickly for people who may not be familiar with the Dandi March part, and this isn't just me, a whole bunch of historians of the Gandhi figure are of the opinion that the Dandi March was a moment of sheer light. And that it illuminated what was an extremely important moment in the Indian nationalist movement. And of course, in terms of immediate results, if you will, the march didn't achieve everything that it set out to. And yet the way that Gandhi reflected on it and the way that he kept going back to this method time and again for the remaining two decades of his life suggests that there was something in it that he thought really worked for him, if you like. So the march itself began in March 1930. You had a bunch of 80 people in addition to Gandhi each hand chosen by him to walk from Ahmedabad, which was the site of his Satyagraha ashram, the Sabarmati ashram, the site where he stayed put longest outside of South Africa, just for the benefit of anyone who might not have as clear an image of his time in India. From 1930 onwards, it was exclusively movement for Gandhi. He never stayed put anywhere else for as long as he had in Ahmedabad. And we'll get into why, because the march was largely responsible for this. So this hand-chosen 
little brigade, if you like, of 80 are walking from Ahmedabad to Dandi, which is a distance of just under 400 kilometers. And they do it by stopping. They walk for a few hours in the morning. They walk again just before sunset and they touch and cover upwards of 50 villages. And they're walking to this little coastal hamlet which has a population of just a few hundred people. It doesn't have enough fresh water supplies or food to sustain the kinds of numbers that are going to appear by the end of the march. But why they're doing it is because they want to protest what is, to Gandhi's mind, one of the most unjust taxes levied by the British Indian government, which was the the salt tax. Not only was there a tax on the product, if you like. There was also a massive inhibition on the production of salt by any source, not selling it directly or retailing it directly to government. So they had a monopoly. The British Indian government had a monopoly on the entire process. And that included some really interesting, I think, acrobatic maneuvers proposed on the part of government to disrupt the traditional sale in salt that used to be a facet of communities who lived across the length and breadth of India from the coast all the way to inland communities as you moved from west to east. And one of the moves that the government had proposed in order to curtail this trade was the creation of a giant wall, which would run from present-day Keta in Pakistan all the way through to Orissa on the east coast of India. Now, had it been completed, this would have been several times the size of what is known as, you know, the Great Wall of China. Mm-hmm. And they realized it would bankrupt them, which is why the government decided quickly that this wasn't a good mm-hmm. idea. And they replaced it with something known as the Great Indian Hedge, which is upwards of 600 meters thick. It is a ginormous natural barrier, which precludes the possibility of salt that's been manufactured on the coast from making its way inland. And it effectively was another way for government to tamp down on the movement of the tribes, the nomadic tribes, who both produced and traded in salt. Mm. You can't tax people if you don't know where to find them. So I suppose this was a handy little way of achieving Mm. that end. But to Gandhi's mind, because salt is an item that absolutely every creature, animate creature on this planet requires in some way, shape or form, it came to be for him a symbol or a signifier, if you like, able to bring on board a wide, wide number of people who otherwise would have, owing to the nature of the schisms that rent Indian society, uh, you know, schisms along the lines of caste, gender, religion, etc. This was a symbol around which large numbers of people could gather because absolutely everyone needed it, regardless of you know what you identified in terms of your religion or gender or caste, as I mentioned. This was something that applied to all people equally, which is why he was looking for something that would cut across the many, 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 many schismatic divides mm. that otherwise inform you know the texture of Indian society, if you like. Mm. It's a fascinating context that you're offering us. And what I think really stands out is that for Gandhi, the practice of walking the march, and not just any march, not just, you know, from one part of the city to another, but across Mm. hundreds of kilometers was a a tool of protest and a political tool. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the kind of epicness of the walk and how it then Mm -hmm. functioned as a protest instrument. 
Absolutely. I love that you pick up on that. So that's exactly what marching is within a Gandhian schema. But before before I can talk about the march sum, and I will, I think it's also important to dwell for a moment on what walking meant to Gandhi. Mm-hmm. Because I think that, you know, this is somebody who comes to walking early from his time as a young student in a foreign land, you know, in the heart of empire. He's barely 18 when he goes to England to step for his law degree. And while he's there, he realizes quite quickly, for a few months, you know, he tries to play the English gentleman. He has lessons on violin playing and ballroom dancing, none of which cohere with anything we know of this figure today. But he gave it a whack, you know, for a couple of months before realizing that that was not what he was there to do. And he quickly cut back on anything that wasn't essential. And part of what he cut back on was spending money on modes of transport, omnibuses, for example. He wasn't taking those at all. Early into his stay there, he became a very frugal foreign student who understood the precarity of his position in terms of finances. He knew that his family had, you know, indebted themselves in order to raise the funds to allow him to come and do this. And so what he did was he started walking. So initially, it's born out of necessity, you know, he's cost cutting and so on and so forth. But he realizes quite quickly that this is a mode of transport that allows him to simultaneously see and take in visions of the city which wouldn't have been accessible to him otherwise. And even as he was the spectator, remember that as a brown body at the heart of empire in the 1880s, he's also a spectacle. And it becomes really, I think this binary really plays itself out for him in interesting ways. And he realizes the power of how walking grounds you in a way that no other mode of transportation Mm. can. And it allows you a connection with land, people, geography, and history in ways that it's impossible for us to manufacture with any other mode of transport. And I think that that is something that he carries with him into South Africa because that's where he's going to go next. From his time in England, you know, where he's acquired walking as both, you know, a mode of meditative practice as well as something that came from necessity, as I said, it develops into its own really during his time in South Africa, where he's walking sometimes upwards of 50 miles a day, because all his settlements in South Africa, both of them, the one in Johannesburg and the one in Durban, were far on the outskirts of the cities proper. And and that's how he chose to engage with these megapolises over them. Mm. I suppose they weren't megapolises, but you know mm. what I mean, the, these urban imaginations. Mm. He was always on the periphery of them, except when he had to work. So you walked into the city with a purpose and that purpose being achieved, you walked back because you mm. saw yourself as somebody who already by then, you know, he's read his Ruskin, he's read his Tolstoy, and he's beginning to articulate massive unease with modernity with a capital M and the visions of it that achieve some kind of fruition, I suppose, in the urban acme that is these centers that we're looking Mm. at and that he's engaging with on a routine Mm. basis. So that's something that I think South Africa gives him. But now when you kind of extrapolate from there and you move from walking as a solitary activity, which affords him obviously all of this, and you multiply it into the sheer, first, the visual spectacle of a march on the move 
And in South Africa, as I said, with the Great March, you know, which happens in 1913, this is 2,200 bodies that are on the move. They move purposively. They move more or less in tandem. Now, of course, this is a line that lasts kilometers. Mm. It is a vision. And I think the power of the march as a political tool becomes really obvious when you leverage the optics of protest that this mode will afford him. And that, I think, is something that they're still tinkering with. Of course, the march in South Africa is never going to be quite the same beast as any march in India, because here the expectation of people joining in is necessarily going to be higher than it would have been or could have been anywhere else in the world. Which is why, like I said, despite the fact that only 80 people were chosen to actually complete the route from Ahmedabad to Dandi, it turned out that there were upwards of anywhere between 60,000 and 90,000 people who were actually a part of the larger movement. But Gandhi made it very clear to them that they could only walk from the limits of their own village or town or city up until they got to the next, so as to not be a burden on the resources that each of these places would have to offer up anybody who was a part of this journey. So there was a very delicate balancing, if you like, of socioeconomic concerns also informing how many people could walk, where they could go, how many people could meaningfully be held in mm. some of these extremely small settlements that they were walking through en route. And of course, the route itself became a political beast, right? Mm. Because the design of it was vital, especially in the context of Dandi, because of course, Gujarat didn't exist as Gujarat back then. It was a part of the Bombay presidency. And what that means is that there were British-held territories and then there were what was known as the princely states, some of whom were extremely hesitant to let a figure, a rabble rouser, if you like, <laughs> like Gandhi and his people walk through their territories. So he couldn't have been sure what the reception do this in those areas would have been. And the aim of this march was to get village headmen, for example, to give up working with government, you know, to resign en masse, for people to be prepared that when the call would go out from Dandi, they would each start manufacturing their own salt mm -hmm. and selling it. There were moments of immense joy that marked the aftermath of this very difficult, grueling. He keeps talking about this journey as a pilgrimage, which we can get into if you like also. So apart from a very obvious, visible, communicative protest tool, by which I mean a protest tool which is able to communicate very, very loudly and clearly, mm -hmm. what it also is couched as when you read Gandhi talk about it after the fact is that this is a mission that to his mind, is a pilgrimage. It is suffused with a moral charge because the tax that they are protesting is amoral or immoral and unjust. So they accrue to themselves the kind of moral high ground, if you like, that comes from this type of positioning. And I think it becomes impossible for anyone to sustain the myth that the British Raj in India was beneficent or was mm. in any way a benign being which was charged with the well-being of India. That was a truth claim it was impossible for anyone to make mm. on the other side of the march and the movement, more importantly, which follows it, because there was violent, violent opposition to these bodies protesting mm. this law on the other side of the march. And the British government came down like a ton of bricks. Many bodies were broken. Arms mm. were dislocated. Head fractures were accrued by satyagrahis, mm. you know, who were protesting this tax mm. when they raided salt works on the other side mm. of the march. 
a fascinating episode in the history of resistance to British colonialism. And it's just wonderful to hear you talk with so much knowledge about this moment in history. But enough about Gandhi for now. We want to hear about Harmony Sigonboria's walk. So tell us how you came to walking as a research methodology for your project. So you made the decision to reverse the route to walk from mm-hmm. Dandi back to Ahmedabad. So mm-hmm. tell us about how you came to choose to do that reversal. I think it's a linked question really is what then does walking allow you as a researcher, as a critical thinker, as a theorist to do that other modes of moving do not allow you to do? Love it. Before we put Gandhi away (laughs) for a couple of minutes, let me tell you why it had to be walking. Mm. Clearly, within the Gandhian schema, the walk meant many, many different things. Gandhi walked more than any human being in recorded history. (laughs) From the time of his return to India, he walked the land from end to end, north to south, east to west, more than anyone on record has. Mm. And for him, this was a means of you know, both setting into place a certain kind of what he called the Sarvoday worker, somebody who was grounded or rooted in community, who went as far as their feet could carry them. And, you know, if that was 20 kilometers, then that was the scope of your working life. Those 20 kilometers were what he would call your karma bhumi or your scope or universe of action. But why it had to be walking is interesting. So in 1934, four years after Dandi, he's walking in Orissa, completely different part of the country, right? This is along the East Coast. And this walk, this march that he does there is called the Harijan Yatra. And it is to contest the practice of untouchability, which is such a heinous part of the social fabric here, if you will. And on the Harijan Yatra, the organizers in Orisha are trying very hard to usher Gandhi into a car. And they're trying to explain to him how much more ground he could cover, how many more people he'd be able to address directly if he would only give up his insistence on walking. Because, of course, by then he's also 65 years old, lest we forget, you know, and this is this is a body that has walked thousands of kilometers a year, every single year from the 1880s onwards. So, you know, do the math. It's a staggering number. And he refuses to get into a car. He refuses to get into a train and not for any of the other reasons that one might expect, because of course he has a philosophical problem with those modes of transport, which is a very different kind of conversation, which I'm happy to have at another time. My own positions of intense privilege, my location in an ivory tower we call academia, the fact that I speak the way I do, I've had access to the education I've had. And all of this doesn't let me engage with the lived reality of most of Gujarat and Gujaratis, people who call Gujarat home today. And the only way I could think of to rectify that was to walk alongside them a while, to walk alongside, you know, the people who inhabit this route today and to ask them just to to listen, to use simple projective techniques, you know, ask them to show me instead of telling me what Vikas meant to them. Simple little things like this. Part of the reason why I had to flip the route to do it at the end of one year of thinking I was going to walk from Ahmedabad to Dandi was quite simply this. I realized that Ahmedabad is the acme of the urban vision that Vikas purports to offer us. Dandi is very, very, very clearly Gujarat's past. 
Mm. I couldn't be walking into the past if I equally wanted this to be a story of our present. If I had to walk into the present that presages our future, I had to flip the route. I mean, it happened just a month before we actually hit the road. Hi, my name is Henry Count Evans. I'm a lecturer in the Department of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Eswatini. I research the climate change, not just communication, but climate change and adaptation. I also am interested in SDGs and how higher education institutions are implementing SDGs at local university levels. Yes, those are all such important research areas, and I'm so glad that we have more and more African scholars looking at those questions from African perspectives. So you just mentioned to me before we started recording that you've just come back from COP27 in Cairo. What was your experience of being there? What were your observations, your takeaways from the discussions? I think when I left, I mean, for, for Egypt, I was excited that COP, I mean, this COP is an implementation COP after class called COP26. And I was excited that when I get to Egypt, I'll find people that are willing to tackle the climate crisis. I think I was disappointed <laughs> the second day. The first day I was happy that COP is being held in Shamui Sheikh, which is seat of peace, which is also in a desert and very hot. And the assumption was that people are going to look at their surroundings and start thinking, do we want the globe to be like this all over the place? Do we want to live and allow the planet to be a desert. So I thought that that was supposed to be a point of inspiration, especially for people that were negotiating. But I think as I started attending events, it's discovered that people are more or less relaxed. It's more to do with who do we want to meet here? How do we move around, see places? It's close to the Red Sea, it's close to Mount Sinai. So yeah, it's a big tourist. Shamu Sheikh is a tourist resort. And I think people loved that that part. Mm. It's not the climate negotiations part. It sounds like your perspective was that, I mean, we hear this a lot in media coverage about climate change, and I know that's one of your areas of expertise. The sense that there's a lot of talking that happens, especially amongst those who have the power to change policy or to implement existing laws or to create new laws, that these cops are often just a talking shop. So, I mean, from your perspective, how much conversation did you see happening about implementation? How many plans did you observe being made? What was the sense and the spirit of the discussions that you were able to be part of? You'd find that people say the right things. But unfortunately, I think when you ask questions to do with how are you planning to implement this, when do you have timelines, do you have targets, then you discover that there is nothing and it's disappointing. So I think I spent most of my time I had to move to the innovation zone where you find small corporates, companies that are into renewables. I found those to be more sincere. I don't like carbon markets and stuff, but at least I could go to a place where sincere people were and they were talking about how they're going to trade carbon and how they're going to make money out of it, at least I mean, uh, in as much as I'm against carbon trade, but I, the opportunity to be in those conversations, the opportunity to actually have an idea of what those people are thinking about and 
So I found that to be more interesting than the mainstream negotiations because these companies are ultimately the ones that are going to be asked by governments to implement many things from renewables to carbon trade and etc. You'd find that uh, there is so much optimism in that zone hmm. because everyone we stay is thinking about how do we make money. So for example, I was in one forum, the sustainability forum, where you find companies mostly from Egypt, Saudi Arabia, they're trying to showcase how they've developed capacity for renewables. And you can look at the structures that they're talking about. It's all centered around particular companies. You ask the question to do, so where are the people in all these designs? I hear you want to give us green energy. And of course, it's part of the greenwashing discourse. But yeah, we hear that you want to come up with one gigawatt solar farm in Egypt. Who is going to be owning what? Who owns that sun? Are you thinking of the people around communities to say, today have community ownership schemes, for example? Then there's none. It's all to do with these agreements between governments and these companies, and people are left out. So you you get into the conversations, but also get to learn that there's nothing that people are planning for ordinary humans. Mm. It's all to do with the profit, and neoliberalism, I think, is one. I think when we went to COP21 in Paris, and with the Paris Agreement, there was hope that we're leaving markets behind. Uh, I think I've learned from COP27 that markets are leading the future Mm. and that's not good for the environment. And perhaps not good for ordinary people, as you mentioned. So the private sector is starting to move in on the climate question and the climate crisis and looking for ways to profit off that. That was one of your, your main takeaways. Yeah. Wow. There are. Mm. So from the perspective of, you know, where we as Africans, and of course, Africans, we are diverse, we are multiple, we are heterogeneous, we do not have, you know, one single set of ideas and perspectives. From your experience of perhaps interacting with other African delegates or observers or academics who were there, what do you think are a couple of the key issues that we as African citizens and residents would need to kind of take forward in thinking about the climate crisis at the moment? Yeah, thank you. I think that's a very difficult question. Mm. In 2021, I negotiated. I was deep in the negotiations and we negotiated under the uh, Africa group and also under the G77 plus China. So we always have the same issues. We need climate finance, especially for adaptation. We need money for loss and damage. More of it is us complaining that we're not responsible. We've done nothing to contribute to the crisis, but we are the worst affected, which is true. Factually, Mm -hmm. it is true. But I think looking at the data now, I think I was looking at some statistics from the World Resources Institute, that the emissions now, I mean, trying to map into 2050 for to reach net zero, the countries that have to do more are not in the global north. They are the first developing countries, especially in BRICS. So having those BRICS countries being part of South Africa is in the Africa group and G77, then also have China in there. And they still talk about the need for the North to reduce emissions, and they don't want to talk about the need for internal reductions. And that is why 
In the 1990s, it was okay to have that kind of negotiation stance. I think it's no longer applicable. The tactics have not changed. We are the victims. We have mm-hmm. nothing to contribute. Largely, yes, I agree with that position, but I think that we need to change and reflect and say, what are we doing to look at ourselves and say, what mm-hmm. should we change? I think, for example, if the world is to reach net zero, China has to reduce carbon emissions by about 90%. So South Africa needs to come down, maybe they have to up the game and go maybe 50, 60%. And countries like Zimbabwe that have weaker economies, but that have a huge coal potential, are beginning to say we are going to invest more in coal to meet our energy demands. And I think they're just echoing what ministers like Gwede Mandashi have said, say that it's either we develop or there's nothing. So we'll go the coal direction as long as that's going to sustain our economies. There are the old blackmail about jobs and the economy. There's need for that internal reflection. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm an African, and I think that we need to be honest and start reflecting and say, is there an opportunity for us to do better? We don't have to take drastic steps, but we have to show the willingness and start doing the small steps with the resources that are available to us. It's clear, I think, now that we won't be receiving huge chunks of money from the North. Mm. Promises have been made. Money has not arrived. Mm. And I think for the sake of our communities that are most affected, we have the capacity, I think, to start doing something. I was talking last week with some delegates that I try and imagine a small village in the east of Zimbabwe that was devastated by floods in 2019. Mm. And I'm thinking, is it impossible for the Zimbabwean government, using its own internal resources, to put buffers around that? Do we need America to come and give us money to do that? Some of the things are to do with just awareness, Mm. basic awareness. What you're saying has really got me thinking because you're making a strong argument about the need for African governments to step up and start to make decisions and respond to the, the threats that are facing communities, landscapes, etc. right, on the basis of the climate crisis, that we can't necessarily wait for the international community to, to send funds over. So we have to start doing it ourselves. And especially considering, I mean, South Africa is, if you'll correct me if I'm wrong, the 14th largest emitter, right? We're quite high up on the list of high emitting countries. And I think it's made worse by the fact that in terms of per capita emissions, South Africa is number one in the world. Mm. So Mm. it's it's, it's that tragedy that the country finds itself in. Mm. It needs to do something about it. Yes. So from the macro to the micro, I mean, I think we can all agree that as as citizens, as residents, as human beings living in the countries that we find ourselves in, that we want should be demanding that our governments do more, put policies and measures into place to lower emissions, but also protect against the dangers that are already with us. I mean, they're not even in the future, the floods, the droughts, et cetera, the famines. I'm thinking from the macro to the micro, and one of the reasons I wanted to invite you onto the podcast is because I've been having an internal debate with myself for some time about my responsibility as an academic in terms of reducing personal carbon emissions, right? So there's a bigger question here about the institutional response versus individual responses and whether individual action 
can ever really aggregate to be enough action to lower the emissions to the point where we're not kind of devastating our own futures. But academics, we fly a lot, and flying is often publicized as one of the biggest causes of emissions, right, and of carbon output into the atmosphere. So perhaps we should start there, like flying. How bad is flying in the bigger picture of carbon output? It's a good question that I just flew back and uh, sure. it's directly talking to my experience, mm. and to my decision making as well. Mm. I think that individuals have the power. It's just that we don't know that we do have that massive power. So I'll, I'll start a little bit far away from flying. Mm. And I would say it starts with taking personal decisions, the kind of car that you drive, where you live. The kind of mean it's to do with lifestyles. Changing lifestyles will change a lot of things. I mean, globally, if you drive a three-liter engine, I mean, academics love driving big cars. And <laughs> for what? I mean, if the idea is to reach the office, but do well with the public transport or with a train or a smaller engine car. I want to believe that it's to do with lifestyles. I mean, we fly, I fly, and I think I'm culpable and need to account. Yes, academics fly. I'm not trying to trivialize our contribution, mm. but the, the major reason why people fly is tourism. And tourism is because you can afford. Mm. So it's, it's about those who have access to funds to actually go on holiday and those who, for them, holiday means just resting from going to the fields. So those people that have excess funds to travel are high up, in, I think, in terms of social hierarchies and they are the people that are driving our emissions. In terms of even back home, what they drive, what they eat, they are staffed, whereas other people are staffed. And just to borrow from Raj Patel. So flying contributes, I think, about 2% to global emissions, which is a huge uh, contribution. I think there's a scientist from UNEP who said, if we could take away half a percentage of carbon, that could improve things in more significant ways. So 2% is a lot, and I think it needs to be reduced. But for that reduction to come, I think we need to adjust lifestyles. What COVID did to us, I think, was to remind us that we can actually live without traveling. Mm. But just after the cases went down, I think we've seen the appetite to go mm. back to the skies. And I was looking at the statistics for COP27. It's the second well-attended COP in history. Hmm. with over 33,000 people flying into Sham Sheikh hmm. in these two weeks. But what was more striking was last year, COP2026, COVID was still so rampant, but 30,000 people flew to Glasgow. Hmm. We have learned nothing from the pandemic and we've forgotten nothing from our pre-pandemic experiences. I mean, hmm. We just want to go back into that kind of extravagance, into that kind of lifestyle, and I think it's devastating for the planet. For me, I think it's to do with personal decisions. I mean, do I want to go? So what are the issues if I don't attend? The first entrance is that do we need COP to be held physically, mm. for example? When I negotiated in May last year, it was virtual. And I can tell you that almost everyone attended. But at the end of each session, they will say, we're not adopting anything because we are virtual. So there's no decision that's been taken up until we meet in Glasgow. That was striking for me. And that was coming from the African negotiating group. Mm. They would refuse to 
take any informal decision because mm. we're effectual. But Microsoft Teams was providing the, the facility, the platform, and we could hear each other. We did I mean, very well. Mm. But people were not interested in utilizing that and learning that we can actually have cops online. Observers were there in those rooms. And it went well, but just because we maybe we don't trust the internet. Mm. But I think it's more to do with we are so much accustomed to flying, being in a different place, uh, doing different things. And, and I think it's it's 10% climate concern, 90% I want to go and take pictures. I mean, the idea of spectacle, the idea of I've been there, I've seen this, I've been to Glasgow, I've been to Egypt. For other people that count, I've been to each and every COP ever since COP1. It's a badge of honor for others. Mm. But what did we achieve from COP1 to now? I, I think we have achieved the reports. But if I look at the circumstances of my village, they have not changed. They've worsened. Mm. Our cattle continue to die. And I think they're dying more than they were dying in 1995. So is COP necessary? Maybe that's the key question. Mm. Is COP necessary? Governments would still love to go to COP, but I think we need to start rethinking the whole idea of these negotiations. Mm. I know I'm not the first person, and I won't be the last, to question the whole idea behind COP and whether it's useful. Yes, we gather people around to try and get consensus, but we haven't seen concrete action on the ground. Mm. So should we continue flying to COP? I was disappointed myself. I don't want to go to COP29 in the UAE next year. I've made that decision that I won't even plan or try to go there because I don't think it's going to change anything mm. for, for me and for the people around me. As academics, maybe that, that was your question. Our jobs involve doing our research, teaching our students, serving our universities and our communities. And one of the things many academics do and aspire to do is that we love to travel to conferences. This is kind of one of the exciting things of our job we get to go somewhere meet our colleagues globally and I can really only speak for myself for a long time I felt that not only was that an exciting part of my job but it was kind of something that I had a responsibility to do but also something that I kind of deserved to do right because you know as in academics in public universities we get paid I think fair and decent and good salaries, but we're not earning anything near what our colleagues in the corporate earn. So the one thing we get to do is we get to go to conferences, right? But in the last few years, as the climate crisis has deepened and as my own understanding of the issues has also deepened, I've been asking myself, should I be flying to these meetings, to these conferences, especially now that we know that we can do them online? We can have very deep, meaningful useful exchanges of knowledge online and of course there is that whole debate about in-person versus you know online but I don't want to put you on the spot because I think it's like you said it's a personal decision right but some some colleagues some academics some researchers have committed to not flying because that's how they feel they can make a difference so what are your thoughts on this complex and difficult scenario or it's a kind of an ethical it's an ethical question but it's also a practical question right so I would say ideally, yes, I mean, we shouldn't be flying because we know we can do similar things virtually. But if you look at a thing around the academic architecture in terms of how people get promotions and stuff, you'd find other universities actually ask you every quarter, how many conferences have you done? 
So universities have budgets for scholars to travel. I think the NRIF also many of their grants, there is an allocation for traveling. And especially for young scholars, you want to travel and see the world, of course, in courts network and meet new people, plan new projects. So taking that away from people, I doubt it's something that we can win, but it's about awareness as well. I'm trying to imagine myself, I'm still young, I think I'm coming, and I think at some point I wanted to travel so much. I want to go to at least three countries in a year. Uh, of course, that expectation, I think for me, is slower now. Of course, this year I've traveled too much. I think I've traveled too much this year, and I'm part of the reason why emissions are becoming worse. But it's personal, I mean, it's ideal, it makes sense. But once you get removed from those connections again, it means, number one, you might not have a voice within the community. So it has to be something that we appreciate maybe as a discipline, as an industry, higher education to say, if we're doing, like I think in communication with ICA, with IMCR, all of them have to travel. If we're to agree that this year we only have ICA, that the IMCR, we don't have to go every day to both. And then we have our own regional groupings and stuff. I doubt we are doing anything that is significant by attending two conferences. Mm. So maybe if one is done virtually, I think we've seen that it works with IMCR in the past two years. We've seen that actually you can do these virtuals, record videos, and people have the chance to watch them over a prolonged period of time, and it works. Mm. So we know that it works, but I know that IMCR is going hybrid next year. Some papers will be online, some people will be physical. And I think we need to break that. We should learn something, I think, from COVID. Are you making the argument that we should all be actively trying to fly less? It may be too much for some of us to commit to never flying again. But is your argument that flying less will already make a difference? It will make a symbolic difference and not a difference in the emissions. But that symbolic gesture to say that we're trying to do something. Yeah, We know it's very small, but these small incremental steps that way. I always use an example of taking decisions to do with punishing bad actors. So if I bank with a particular bank and they fund call projects, I can take my account away to a bank that I think is better. Mm-hmm. And if we could have 50% of that bank A's clients taking a similar decision, that bank could start rethinking its call funding projects. Mm. So we have massive power in our hands. Mm, as maybe we just as individuals. Yeah. So I think we've been lied to that you are just one person, you can't change the world. Mm. But I think with enough collective effort and people taking those who are individual but collective steps. Mm. We can change the world in more meaningful ways. It's difficult, I want to admit, it's very difficult, it's very idealistic, but it's something that can happen. Maybe not now, maybe not in the next 20 years, but it's something that should be done. Flying less is good for the environment, Mm. but I think it sends a symbolic message to say that we need to do this. Maybe if we do it as an industry, as higher education, maybe we are going to have other industries trying to follow then individuals fly for tourism also scaling down and maybe start promoting local tourism instead of flying to egypt instead of flying to the us 
You can actually take a bus to go and see your local zoo, to go and see your local game park and promote domestic tourism. I'm Dr. Gabriele Leighton. I did my PhD at the University of Cape Town with the Urban Caracol Project, and I'm now a postdoctoral researcher with Rhodes University. Lovely to have you with us on our podcast. So you work on this really fascinating project that I think is gaining quite a lot of media attention and social media interaction about the urban caracals in, in Cape Town. And I imagine that as an ecologist, as a biologist, you've spent a lot of time in the field, right? Studying the creatures that you study. Can you tell us about perhaps one of the most memorable times that you saw a caracal in the wild? The first time that I saw a caracal in the wild was actually, it wasn't really part of any fieldwork or anything. And I don't think I even knew about the project at that point. I was walking in the Dehel forest with a friend. It's in this very closed canopy forest, very dense vegetation. And we saw something moving and running up the hill. And at first I thought it was a dog because it was about sort of dog sized. And then I just, I sort of saw the way that it was moving and it was definitely moving in a very cat-like way. And I just remember being so shocked and surprised, you know, like, not expecting at all to see a caracal in in sort of that context or, or in that space because it's you know as you're going up Constantia Neck there's roads on both sides and it's it's actually quite a suburban area it's just this little pocket of natural forest that's left there and I just yeah I remember being blown away that this cat had moved through this landscape and just not expecting to see it there at all yeah that was quite a, a special moment this beautiful encounter between you and this wild cat. And on the Instagram page of your project, there's a catalogue almost of those encounters, right? Other people who are out hiking or in some other context encounter a caracal, they share their pictures with you and then you share them with the world. Yeah. So as the project developed, so the project developed as a a postdoctoral project of my supervisor, Laurel, who did similar work with bobcats in the US and then came here and started working on caracals and very quickly realized that they're very elusive, very difficult to track. And so drawing on citizen scientists could be quite helpful and using that data to sort of inform where to put traps and where to scout for good locations, potentially trap caracals and collar them. And so we set up a sightings form on our website and that's been hugely successful. Yeah, so anytime someone sees a cat and they know about the project, they can go to this form on our website and fill it in. And we have hundreds of sightings that have been reported to us, which is really incredible. And I think as the awareness of the project has grown, so have you know, people's awareness of the sightings form has grown. And so we actually have collected a lot of data on caracal occurrence just through that sightings form. And then, as you say, people are obviously either with their smartphones or their cameras or whatever, taking these amazing images and and videos of these cats. And then we have this platform which we can, you know, share it with the rest of the world. And I think that's been so amazing because it's really grown the awareness of the species in this space. Like, I think before this project started, Sandparks wasn't even sure if there were caracals on the peninsula. So it's really amazing how people have gotten behind the project and been so interested, as amazed as we are that they're persisting in this space. 
So part of the amazement, I think, well, that you guys as scientists perhaps feel is on the success of the citizen involvement, right, in the the capturing of the visual evidence of the existence still of the species so close to the city. But have you noticed anything about how the people who report the caracals express how they feel when they see them and when they have this moment of encounter with this creature. Yeah. So, I mean, most people who report to us are just, you know, so excited and blown away that, you know, they've managed to spot this animal in kind of a unexpected context. I mean, most people who are going for a walk, you know, in the suburbs or on a trail that's really close to the urban edge or something are not necessarily expecting to see a wild animal. And I mean, caracals are not huge, but they're fairly large. So, for them to still exist in such a developed space, I think it surprises people. And so mostly just very excited, wanting to know more, lots of questions. And I think just being in awe of of how beautiful they are as well, Mm. because they are incredibly beautiful animals. They are. And I mean, I'm one of the followers of your Instagram account. And it seems like each post that comes up is a more beautiful portrait of one of these (laughs) cats, right? And they are really admirable very beautiful. And I can imagine, I've never seen a caracal, although I've often hoped to, but I can imagine in that moment when one suddenly realizes what it is, that it's not just someone's Labrador out for a walk with the family, that there is a moment of awe almost, as you mentioned it. And that makes me think a little bit about the interspecies encounter. And mostly humans have been very destructive to almost every other species, especially the wild ones. So, I mean, I wonder if you could tell us a little more about how the research that you've been involved in and even your own specific project for your PhD, what that revealed to us about the interspecies relationship between humans and these caracals who, by choice or by necessity, are living quite close to urbanized areas. Yeah, sure. So it's quite interesting what you're saying about interspecies interactions. I think that, you know, in other areas of the country, people's relationship with caracals is quite different. So most agricultural landscapes in the country, the people and, you know, trying to make a livelihood in those areas, see caracals as a pest species. They try to eradicate them at any opportunity they can get because they do, you know, threaten their livelihoods because they take livestock. They're opportunistic predators. So that's just you know, something that they do. And so it's quite interesting how in an urban space, people are much more open to caracals, I think. And the attitudes here are mainly, yeah, like you say, it's like awe and excitement and, you know, appreciating the beauty of the animal. Although that being said, you know, there are people who are worried about their pets being taken by cats. And so, you know, there's a bit of human wildlife conflict there. But for the most part, people actually seem quite sort of inspired that something so wild still exists in a space that isn't very wild Mm. if that makes sense so so yeah it is an interesting interaction like quite different from other areas in the country for the exact same species Mm. and so my research has been focusing on from the cat's perspective how they have been adapting to these urban spaces and development and people and infrastructure sort of segmenting their habitat and how they perceive risk in these environments and how they overcome it. So one of the things I was interested in is their foraging ecology because the urban space is actually 
quite rich in prey, high prey abundance because of all the resources that people bring in, you know, fertilizers and food and watered gardens and things like that mm. means that there's really high densities of prey. What mm. kinds of things would a caracal hunt? So like I mentioned, they're quite opportunistic. So they pretty much eat anything. It's quite incredible. So when I was doing this diet study, I I think I had to detect or identify over 70 different species that they were consuming here on the peninsula. So they will literally go for anything. But the bulk of what they're eating is is mainly rodents and, and birds. So guinea fowl, Egyptian geese, and then flay rats and things like that. So that's the mainstay of their diet. And so, yeah, this sort of idea that they're eating domestic cats, it's a perception that doesn't really hold up with my findings because, mm. I mean, that was like less than 4% of what they're eating. They're mainly going for indigenous wild prey, mm-hmm. which is quite interesting because with them using this urban edge space, you'd expect like maybe they would be taking in more sort of human associated prey. but it seems like the prey that they are going for are still wild species, but those species that tend to do well close to humans, so mm. in gardens and golf courses and things mm, like that. Right. And so, yes, so there's this attraction towards, you know, all this food, but there's obviously risks that come with that. And so that's what I was kind of interested in is this risk-reward trade-off. And then looking at their foraging behavior, so how they might mitigate those risks when they are hunting close to people. And one of the main things is that they're just really, really good at not being seen. And I think that links back to what we were saying about, you know, people being so surprised to see them because they are so elusive and they're so good at camouflaging. I mean, they just hunker down in whatever vegetation you wouldn't see them, even if you were two meters away. And like have experience of that with cats that are you know, so close to you. And if you hadn't known that they were there, you wouldn't see them. That lends them a lot of success in this landscape is Mm. the fact that they are so elusive and so cryptic. So one of the strategies they have for surviving humanity, I suppose, is to hide well from us. And that image of the caracal hiding and being completely still and imperceptible in a little piece of feinbos two meters from where a whole bunch of people might be hiking past is quite compelling. Yes, yeah. And so actually, when I published that research on their sort of resource selection and their habitat selection while they were foraging, we called the paper Hiding in Plain Sight Mm. because these cats are here, they're present, you know, people know that they're here now because the project has grown so much, but you still don't see them. Mm. I mean, they're just so, so good at at concealing themselves. Mm. And especially, this is especially true when they're closer to the urban edge. That's what Mm. we found in our models is that as they move closer to, to human space, this ability to hide in vegetation and not be seen is even more important. Whereas cats that are less used to humans don't do that as much. Mm, interesting. And you mentioned earlier that there's a difference in the like human wildlife relationship between these cats and us in urban versus more rural spaces. Can you say a bit more about that? Because it seems like there's a strategy or an intelligence at play where the the cats are adapting their behavior to be more successful in different contexts right so they know to be more stealthy and hide away more in urban spaces yet behave differently in other spaces are there any other kind of interesting differences in the ways that the cats and the humans interact in urban versus rural so I mean, it's not something that we've really 
quantified or studied specifically. Most of our research is focused just here on the peninsula, looking at, at the sort of more urban population. It would be really, really interesting, though, to do a comparison of their resource selection or their habitat selection in rural spaces versus urban spaces and just see, like, what are the strategies that they're using in more agricultural landscapes where they're more heavily persecuted versus here in an urban space where, you know, they they still have this fear of humans, which I think is quite an innate thing. We're seen as as an apex predator, essentially, um, to be avoided. And yeah, whether there there are actually behavioral differences. Mm. That's not something that I know of, of anyone having done, but it would be very, very cool to do that. Mm. New, new research project alert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you've talked a little bit about how there seems to be almost a kind of symbiosis and a coexistence that's working relatively well for the species in terms of them coming closer to human settlements and getting the benefit of that, like getting the access to the kinds of birds that, you know, hang out in golf courses and and gardens, et cetera. Have there been any kind of negative impacts on the caracals from human existence or human pollution or the other things that we may have done even without realizing to their well-being? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, been a massive focus of this project because it is at heart a conservation project so we wanted to understand what the threats to the species were and especially this population and I think that's the risk of of being drawn into an area where there are lots of resources but it's in an urban area with a lot of novel threats that a lot of wildlife are not necessarily evolved to be able to handle and so we do see a lot of anthropogenic mortalities including being hit by cars so that's actually the major cause of death is that i mean most wildlife don't really know how to avoid cars and highways and things but they have to cross highways and roads because their habitat is so fragmented so in order for them to access food they need to cross roads and they unfortunately caracals get hit all the time Mm. i think i pick up caracals that have been hit by cars at least once a month sometimes more and so you know, for my research, we do collect those carcasses to then do postmortems to understand disease and pesticide exposure. And that was a lot of the focus of my PhD was looking at environmental pollutants and how they kind of move from their source points into wildlife and into reserves, mainly the Table Mountain National Park, which is my study area. And so it's cars and then diseases and pollutants and then also poaching, so mainly snare that we picked up being an issue and then being killed by domestic dogs which is you know directly because people Mm. are keeping dogs as pets and they allow them to roam around in natural spaces yeah and then they do kill wildlife yeah and then the other thing is quite interesting is because there seems to be a fairly high density of caracals it's not something that we've studied there's a lot of overlap in their territories and so we've also recorded caracals killing other caracals Mm. and so it seems like there's also a lot of competition between Mm. individuals as well Mm. so that was also quite an interesting threat to the population Mm. that's unique to the system that isn't necessarily going to be an issue somewhere where there's more space Mm. and less development and less fragmentation of habitat. So could you tell us more about what kinds of pollutants you found and what your hypothesis is about where they come from. Yeah, so 
So that was a big focus for us, especially because my supervisor, Laurel, was very interested in, in rat poisons in the bobcat populations that she was studying. And she found this relationship between exposure to these poisons and mange, which was often lethal. So there's a lot of these sort of pollutants that we use or pesticides that we use in an urban system without realizing that they're ending up in wildlife and they have very serious health impacts for them. And so she did test caracals for exposure to rat poisons and found there was very high sort of occurrence of these poisons in the cats that she tested. And so we were interested to expand that to understand, you know, are there any other pollutants and compounds that people are using or through industry or, or whatever find their way into wildlife and whether there are any impacts of those. And so because we've been doing all of these necropsies of cats and have collared cats as well, we had a whole bunch of samples which we could then test in the lab to see what are the levels and what are the occurrence and diversity of, of different pollutants. And so I focused on a group called organic chlorines, which are persistent organic pollutants. That group includes things like DDT, which is a very famous pesticide or insecticide, as well as PCBs, um, which are used for a variety of things in mainly industrial uses and the main uses in electrical transformers. So they're very associated with electrical infrastructure, mm-hmm. which is obviously very concentrated in urban areas. Mm. And those things are both very toxic compounds and, and they're also carcinogenic. And the other thing is that they persist for a really long time, despite the fact that they are banned. They're technically not allowed to be used in South Africa. But we did detect them in caracal tissues both in their blood and their fat tissue. And then to try and understand where they were coming from, we did sort of correlative analysis of, you know, if a cat was using more of a certain habitat, did that mean that it had higher levels of a particular compound? And and then similarly for their diet, because we knew exactly what they were eating based on our diet analysis if they were eating more of a specific type of prey group, you know, were they more exposed? And yeah, we found that that cats who are moving closer and using more human transformed landscapes were more exposed. And especially those using urban edge space, especially those that are closer to vineyards, because I think vineyards are kind of an entry point. Most of them are sort of along this urban edge space. They are very attractive because there's a lot of prey in those areas. And so we found this important link. I hope you've enjoyed these three very different takes on journeys. We ourselves have journeyed from the power of walking as a political tactic and research method to the complexities of flying in the face of the climate crisis, to the stealthy and silent movements of caracals in and out of the edges of the city of Cape Town. I hope that whatever journeys may await you, even if their only mental explorations are nourishing and interesting, and that your feet touch the ground at least some of the way. Time to read the room. Of course, we recommend Harmony Siganporia's magnificent book, Walk from Dundee, which was published by Oxford Press in 2021. We've had wonderful insight into some of her ideas and writings from the conversation on this very podcast. So please do go and read 
her book if you are interested in walking as political methodology and the famous Gandhi Salt March. I also recommend the historical novel by Fred Kumalo, The Longest March, published by Penguin Random House in 2019. The novel intertwines a complicated love story with a fascinating historical event. In 1899, 7,000 Zulu mine workers walked from the gold mines in Johannesburg to Natal, covering a distance of 500 kilometers over 10 days. Their evacuation from the freshly minted city of Joburg was because of the looming Anglo-Boer War. They had to leave to avoid getting caught up in the conflict. And all the trains had been stopped. So the only option was for everyone to walk, so they walked. It was an epic journey indeed. And Kumalo captures it with dexterity, eloquence, and quite a bit of humor also. And of course, the love story that's part of it makes it all the more readable and enjoyable. An excellent read about a very long walk. The Academic Citizen is produced and funded by the South African Research Chair in Science Communication, hosted at Stellenbosch University. The aims of our podcast are to create a space for wide and deep discussion about key issues animating higher education in South Africa, Africa, the Global South, and beyond. Create a space for interdisciplinary exchange for academic researchers and educators. Help researchers, educators, and scientists to tell their stories and listen to and learn from each other's insights and experiences. And Create a space for science in all forms to be communicated in order to serve social justice broadly conceived. We welcome your feedback, opinions and suggestions for future guests and show themes. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or visit our website www.the-academic-citizen.org. This episode was hosted and written by Mahita Ikani, produced by Lerato Magade, sound edited by Victoria Dalahab, and Fumani Drakha, who provides communication support. We thank Dr. Gabriella Leighton, Dr. Henry Count Evans, and Harmony Sigan Poria for contributing to this episode. <laughs>